Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people, except we also have on Emily Jashinsky. Uh, just uh, if, you, if you're following for a longer period of time, you know that's one of our running jokes. But uh, yes, we are very happy to have Emily Jashinsky back on High Noon for the final episode of the year. Um, Emily wears many, many hats, not the least of which is with us at IW as a senior fellow. Uh, and she works with YAF to teach young conservative journalists how to do real journalism. Uh, she is the culture editor over at The Federalist, and she is one half of Breaking, I always forget it, con- Counterpoints on Breaking Points um, with Ryan Grimm, who I believe has colonized her mind and made her into a Marxist. Um, <laughs> he's the oppressor. Yes, uh, he's the colonizer in this uh, mental landscape. Um, no, uh, welcome Emily Jashinsky to the last episode of High Noon After Dark for the year. On this occasion, we have uh, brought back our previous um, After Dark uh, activity of having wine while we talk about world events. But the first thing, obviously, that I want to ask you about for this episode is what do you think uh, about the whole yanking a major party candidate off of the ballot thing in Cal- in Colorado. It, you know, when you said, because listeners should know, this is the last thing. We're, we're talking the Friday before the, the Christmas break. And this is the last thing both of us are doing because we're in the afternoon. This is my last thing for a while. So we've broke open the alcohol. And before we started taping, Inez was talking about the sexual exploits of congressional staffers. And then she begins by saying, I need to ask you a question about the yanking. And I really thought that was about to go in a different direction. (laughs) So I'm glad that you asked me about the yanking of Donald Trump off of the Colorado ballot, at least temporarily, because the Supreme Court, it's now in the Supreme Court's hands. We'll get to yanking uh, in the Capitol in a minute. Of course we will. Um, I'll I'll need to get through the the vodka to uh, approach that subject. Um, but I, like the, I, there's no unique take to be had on the four three decision of the Colorado Supreme Court uh, because everybody sort of falls neatly into one category or the other, which is like this is wildly overstepping uh, the bounds. And hey, Trump deserves it get them off the ballot by any means possible. I mean, that's an actual uh, directive that has been given to California courts or, or to California, the left of California. It's like, find any way to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot. And even people on the left that I've seen over the last couple of days since that decision was rendered are recognizing, uh, not everybody on the left, but some people on the left are recognizing that this is a you know, if, if they're super interested in, in pure, unadulterated democracy, uh, as California has been such a failed experiment, and there's something deeply undemocratic about uh, what might happen in Colorado and then other states if this is a template for them to follow. Um, and from a legal perspective, by the way, some of the analyses of the uh, decisions have been have just, I think, illustrated how sloppy the logical reasoning behind it is uh, and how even people like David French seem to almost be willfully misreading the 14th Amendment and its subsequent uh, its subsequent modifications of the U.S. Code. All of that, yes, uh, but also just if you want another January 6th, we are like this this decision came out as the same week that a 24 civil war trailer 
came out, which I'm trying really hard not to be like a fainting couch tipper gore about, but it feels pornographic in a, a really unhelpful way. Uh, and it's, it's it's distasteful to me that people are going to make money off of something like that. And I, I think it's going to be satire in the same way that Hunt movie was satire. At the same time, I just have a hard time being amused by it at this point. And I, I think even people on the, re- the left are looking at this like it could be the the first, not the first, but like one of the clearest steps down a really scary path. Yeah, it's, you know, even I feel like even the left at certain points in the um, and here I'm thinking about a clip of MSNBC that was circulating, who unfortunately I've forgotten who who was in it. But um, it was a commentator basically saying, uh, pointing to as precedent what happened after the Civil War and barring of certain Confederate officers running for office. Um, and it so even implicit in that is the suggestion that this is the sort of thing that either precedes or follows a civil war. It's almost like they want the consequences of conquering <laughs> without actually having to go through the messy process of shooting at each other. Um, and that, that is the, um, I feel like the, the big danger here, uh, is that the left, despite screaming nonstop about the potential for dictatorship and how Donald Trump is Hitler, um, doesn't seem to take seriously the possibility that the veneer of politics will fall away at some point, um, that politics is war by other means, and that at some point people will simply check out of the legitimacy of the political process. And what when that happens, people resolve their differences by force. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that it, it's very scary. I actually, the trailer looked really great to me. I, I love those kinds of movies. So um, I'll report back and see if, if the movie is uh, depressing or, or merely uh, a good piece of cinema or a bad one. Um, I do think they, like from the trailer, it seemed like they were intentionally trying not to uh, trigger some of the, um, I know a lot of people on the right read that trailer online as like, oh, of course, like one side is going to be the the dumb tooth dragging yokels and the other one will be the enlightened. It seemed to me more from the trailer and it's always, you know, hard to judge from the trailer, but it seemed to me more like uh, the main characters were people who were not involved in either side um, and trying to navigate that. And then also the fact that they they put together in the movie California and Texas um, on the same side seemed to me that like they were actually trying to to remove uh, to the extent possible the parallels to our current situation. Although I do think it says something that people are thinking this way in Hollywood and drawing creativity and ideas from the possibility of civil war, which does seem, um, if not imminent, at least more uh, more worrying and more um, realistic a possibility than it has been for for a while. Um, so on, on the actual substance of this, um, it seems to me there's a very strong argument against this, um, and, and the absurdity, and the, there's a reason we've never had, for example, or, like, we've never had a, a random state court decide one of the major party candidates is not going to be on our ballot. Um, so, and, and this is a novel application, just like, for example, some of the other charges that we've talked about at length that have been filed against Trump, right? There, there seems to be a total dispensing with the idea that perhaps it's not worth doing something so obviously 
directly dangerous to quote unquote norms of a democracy or a republic um, on completely novel legal grounds. Uh, And I have an argument for why I think it's, it's completely bogus as well. But even, even if you thought that there was sort of a colorable argument here, um, I do take a step back sometimes and, and wonder at the pure hubris of doing this, right? Like what practical thing do they gain? So even if they strip Trump off of, you know, a handful of blue, the bluest blue states, right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to win those states anyway. Yeah. What happens? I mean, then it, it, the election just goes to the swing states and whoever controls the legislature is going to strip the other candidate off the ballot. I mean, it's it's completely short-sighted for a, a lot of reasons, but the most frightening of which is that it's the same tactic as uh, the special counsel into Russia collusion or, or into uh, the Russia hoax, I should say, the, the Mueller special counsel, which was to disqualify Donald Trump, to get him impeached. It's the same thing with the, uh, not the Burris, but the Zelensky phone call impeachment hearing it's the same thing over and over again, which is to find a way to uh, sort of work the refs and eliminate Donald Trump on a technicality instead of at the ballot box, which the problem with that is in some sense, you know, Donald Trump is so freewheeling and wild that you can probably find something at some point to disqualify him. And there's going to be double standards involved and it's going to be a much more complicated issue for the right. Uh, But all that is to say, the problem with that is you never deal with why people voted for him. And I feel like that's the same problem here again, which is that they want to bulldoze uh, the sentiment. Uh, They they want to deal with Trump, but not deal with at all. They they hope that by, by taking down Trump, they will shame and humiliate his voters into somehow changing their minds. And they're so confident that they are you know, able to control the country. And to some degree, it's true with the vast sort of administrative state, they, uh, state, they can basically control the country. So they have this, again, to use your word, hubris. Uh, but what that does is uh, foment discord to the point of, of violence is what we saw spill out on January 6th. And we're going to see it spill out again. It's so counterproductive. If your goal is to stop people um, from dying at the hands of political violence in the United States, how many uh, people, around 20 people, more than that probably were killed by the riots in 2020, billions of dollars worth of property damage. If your goal is harmony, if your goal is calm in the United States, this is enormously counterproductive. There's nothing about this that actually helps that at all. But their real goal is control. Yeah, it's it's like they imagine that 75 million Trump voters in the country will evaporate if they strike Donald Trump from the ballot. And it's right. such a fundamentally unserious way of thinking about politics. I, I, I don't. That part of it genuinely takes me aback, not the fact that there are some idiots who would call for this, but the fact that this is clearly a sort of considered strategy, by the way. Um, like, who, who who seriously thinks about politics, one, sees enormous upside to doing this because on the practical level, right, it's just um, you're, you're only going to be able to do this in the bluest of states. It's not going to fundamentally affect the election. Um it's nearly guaranteed if it stands and isn't struck down. I think it will be struck down. I, I would, my prediction on here is that it's going to be either 
six three or seven two. Actually, I I, on, I I will go through the merits on on uh, just briefly, just for for people. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think on some level the merits matter because I think these the forces that we're, we've just been talking about. Um, at some point, this is not a legal question. This does go. To, it's a political question with a capital P. And when you take away the ability of people to like resolve their differences, their very deep and important differences through the political process, it's going to come out in a much less pleasant way. Um, but in terms of the niceties of of the argument, uh, it seems really clear to me. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a Lamar. I'm not. Uh, there are some uh, real experts on the history of the 14th Amendment. Um, but one, it seems really clear to me that the context of this is is the Civil War, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that this is a radically different and unimaginable context to to use um, this standard of of insurrection. And two, um, just the basic structure of the Fourteenth Amendment. You have a variety of sections. The last section is gives the power to Congress to effectuate those things, which is very important because part of the fight. Um, you know, going into the Civil War was not only about slavery, but about who had the power to deal with questions of slavery and even questions surrounding slavery, right? Um, not to mention the, the question of leaving the Union, but we'll we'll leave that aside for now. But um, right, so this is clearly like a a um, something that was put in place, just like some of the other clauses of the Fourteenth Amendment were put in place very clearly to remedy the specific position of freed African slaves in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. But all of those provisions were put in place, and and the power was then given to Congress to effectuate them. Um, Congress has done that uh, twice since the amendment passed, once in the 1870s or 80s, I believe, um, putting in essentially defining this obvious, I feel like the, the basic common sense question when coming across the argument for the first time about the 14th Amendment here is, well, wh- who decides who's an insurrectionist, right? Mm-hmm. By what standards mm-hmm. are we going to decide who's an insurrectionist? Um, and so Congress is supposed to answer that question. They gave one answer to it initially that included the ability for the federal DA um, or federal DAs to file charges. That would be federal charges filed um, against someone either, interestingly, either in civil court or in criminal court. Um, so that was the standard initially. That was repealed in the 1940s. There's a second effectuating statute. And that's where we have the definition of insurrection as a federal crime. Now, so that's in the code, has been since the 1940s. Um, Trump has never been even charged with that crime, let alone convicted of it. And, you know, I think from all other circumstances, we can say that, uh, you know, there are DAs in, in both of the federal and state levels who are doing everything they possibly can to find something to throw at the wall uh, to get Donald Trump. So the fact that even they did not charge insurrection, uh, I think, makes it obvious um, that that would be an impossible charge to convict him of um, for his actions on January 6th. However, you know, uh, however sort of uh, um, criticizable we may find them, um, or or even if you think some parts of his action were criminal, uh, doesn't rise to the the statute and the definition of insurrection. So I I think this is very unlikely to stand. I think it'll get knocked down, but it, it does show, it does show to the, the point that we were discussing before, just how blithely a certain part of the left is willing to violate the most important norms, not just constitutional norms that we've been crapping on for a hundred years. Um, but the kind of basic ones about peaceful transfer of power, 
about, uh, for example, the, the separation between civilian control over the military. Those are in different contexts. And now, um, of course, prosecuting and trying to jail the primary political opponent. Um, you know, these are, <laughs> if we saw this happening in Venezuela, we would have no problem basically declaring it no longer a democratic system. I think I, I, I would, I know I would as a like commentator or whatever, if somebody was asking me, oh, this, that, you know, this happened in Russia, this series of events happened in Russia. I would say, well, yeah, because Russia isn't a liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that's, Ryan actually mentioned this, uh, Ryan Grimm, when we were we were on air the the morning after the Colorado decision uh, was announced, and it, one of the things he said because he has been working on the story about uh, basically a U.S. backed coup to force what people see as the Trump of Pakistan out of office, Imran Khan, um, and and he's in in jail right now. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, Imran Khan's currently in jail as we're recording this. And Ryan made the point, he was like, yeah, it's, it's actually, you know, it, it, while they're pursuing what they're pursuing against Donald Trump, uh, it's it's even more glaringly obvious than it has been in the past. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had on Federalist Radio Hour, Stuart Reed, who wrote a book about uh, the essentially the coup against Lumumba in uh, DRC in the 60s. And it's something the CIA has been involved with for a while, disrupting, you know, in, in some cases, the legitimately democratic transfer of power and elections and, and all of that. But that, I note that because in 2020, one of the ways that the regime tried to stop the election, the re-election of Donald Trump, was literally the CIA organizing a letter claiming that the Hunter Biden laptop report, which showed a vast influence peddling scheme was Russian disinformation when they knew it was not Russian disinformation. This is something that the CIA has essentially done in other countries for decades. And they tried it out on a president here. Some would say that they did that, uh, the assassination of Kennedy many, many years ago. But let's put that aside. They told um, you colonized by Ryan Grimm. But I mean, the CIA itself, like people were using CIA email addresses. I, I wish the CIA was more that. like Ryan Grimm imagines it to be. Anyway. <laughs> But the CIA was using like CIA email addresses to organize this letter saying that this is Russian disinformation, which was the uh, which was the scrap of legitimacy that big tech and our government needed to make it so that you literally could not direct message. First, you couldn't tweet that link, but you could not send that link in a direct message to another person in the weeks before a presidential election. Like they have crossed the Rubicon, the, the anti-democratic Rubicon in immediate American history in ways that are so glaring. There's nothing surprising about what's happening in Colorado. I mean, it's just, it's all happening transparently. And I really think decades down the road, in the same way that we look at some of the stuff like J. Edgar Hoover did um, or Alan Dulles or whatever, the same way that we look at that now, we will look at what has happened in this time period as profoundly, uh, profoundly anti-American, profoundly wrong um, and historic, like errors of historical magnitude. I mean, that really assumes that things turn out all right if people are looking back on it. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the Rubicon is heavily trafficked, almost as heavily trafficked as the Rio Grande uh, <laughs> these days. People are just gathering at the Rubicon for asylum. 
Yeah, no, I mean, like, I'm laughing, but there's not really a lot else to say. It, it is that, like, the idea that you can maintain this double standard by which, you know, um, the the actions, I mean, January 6th, to my mind, and my, you know, everybody asks, like, how how would you define this, blah, 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 and people fight about whether or not it's an insurrection or a riot or, like, the most obvious answer to what January 6th was to me is that a bunch of idiots thought uh, that they could behave in the exact same way as the left had behaved for the last six months and have it be treated the same way with a slap on the wrist and unseriousness. Um, but but that was an incredibly naive belief on their part, um, especially for people who claimed that the election was stolen. It seems like those two things would go together. Uh, that if you realize that if there's a regime capable of stealing a democratic election, they're probably not going to deal with you as kindly as they did with the people who, as you say, did like, I think it's something around 20 people who died in these, these riots mm -hmm. for six months. Now I grant that there's something different about doing it in the Capitol. Another, uh, yeah. thing we'll get to <laughs> doing it uh, in the Capitol. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I grant that there's something like different about breaking into the Capitol, um, but we've seen disorder in the Capitol before from the left and since, um, both on the state level and in the federal Capitol. So uh, the most fundamental description to me of what happened on January 6th is the right behaving like the left is routinely allowed to do and even praised by mainstream media, given billions of dollars from Fortune 500 companies and praise from none other than the vice president of the United States, right? The idea that there was praise for these, you know, rioters in the Capitol, right? Um, after they started to to act in, in, con in ways contrary to law, um, there, there was no, like, Donald Trump actually went out and said, no, peaceful, peaceful, please, you know, he tried to calm mm -hmm. them down, um, yep. which Twitter removed at the time, which people don't, anyway. Um, but but in any case, uh, I think it's it, it's the idea that you can maintain this kind of standard, double standard in the rule of law indefinitely and that people will continue that the right by nature or whatever will continue to um, just take it and not to to start like behaving as though the rule of law doesn't exist and doesn't apply to them. Um, and that's I mean, I, I, again, the Rubicon thing. I feel like we're just repeating ourselves. I feel like how many times this year have we had this Rubicon discussion? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's there. There has never been a perfect version of America, and and that's because the Amer like the American government, our system of government, was devised on this idea that man can never uh, you know, be perfect. That you know, we need various guardrails, but we also need the freedom to sort of elect the people who uh, make, make these big decisions and oversee the guardrails and, and all of that. Um, and if you're, for me, for example, on January 6th, um, and maybe this is the same for you, uh, I'm gonna guess that it is, but maybe not. Um, I'm, I watched the regime behave as it did um, to you know create the outcome that it wanted. And I saw that and I still had, optimism and i still had faith in our republican small r system of government to the point that i would never rationalize ransacking the capital um uh, you know there, there's no way that i ever would have you know gotten caught up in that or been party to that 
but the system has worked pretty well for me. Um, you know, even being sort of a, a white cishet Christian from the Midwest, the system has worked pretty well for me, uh, you know, over the course of my lifetime. There are people who have been lied to repeatedly about uh, what they're putting in their bodies, about opioids, about WTO, about divorce, uh, over and over and over again for the last 30 years. And they had this uh, illusion of demo democracy in the presidential elections. They were casting their ballots um, and, and they were watching that be manipulated by people like Mark Zuckerberg with billions of dollars. Um, and they were watching that scrap of legitimacy that they still had in the country um, be you know, undermined by the same people who lied to them over and over and over again and, and actually profited off of those lies, made their lives worse over and over and over again. Uh, and so it's, it's really disturbing that in the, you know, almost 10 years since uh, Donald Trump first hit the scene and was undermined every step of the way um, for, by, you know, the defenders of democracy who were undermining it in anti-democratic ways, anti-Republican ways, uh, that we're, you know, five years almost from 2019 when a lot of this was happening in 2024 years, uh, what a lot of people were, all of that is to say, we're going in the opposite direction. The elites are going in the opposite direction of where they should be going. Um, and and that, I think, is the, you know, we could have this conversation about what we've seen from college campuses since October 7th and all of these concerns that are very immediate and frightening and are affecting the long-term health and safety of this country. Um, but what's happening politically is so immediate and urgent and I think, and as we're, we are heading into, uh, maybe we're already in it, we just don't know, but we're heading into a protracted period of political violence, because I don't know what you say to those people who have been lied to for years and years and years, who have been hurt, who are the victims of uh, increased crime, who have had, who have fallen into uh, addiction, who've experienced poverty um, at the hands of people who made money off of it, you know, I... <laughs> I I, I, ha, I I'm a Christian. I believe in you know peaceful protest and all of that. Uh, so I know where I stand on it. But it's getting really really hard um, to persuade people, you know, that that they shouldn't uh, be furious to the point of uh, you know losing all faith in the institutions and in the system. Um, and, and that leads down some really dark roads. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is riots are the language of the unheard. Which is true. It's not a justification, though, for rioting, you're right? Like, it's, it's un, and no, and that's what I, the... That's, so this is why I, to some extent, the question becomes how, how true are the grievances, right? Uh, when, when you, to, if you want to separate between these two types of grievances, you can't escape the truth of the matter. Like you can't escape whether or not those grievances are true. Um, and I've said this before, and I know he has a new book out and I got to have him back on here to talk about it. But um, I know uh, Tim Carney's book, Alienated America. I know when I first read it, um, I had a very uh, negative reaction, not to the book and what it can and like what it was laying out. I recognized that was true, but to the way that a lot of Trump voters would talk about their, 
their lives with a sort of lack of agency, right? Um, as though the mm -hmm. decisions that they had made, um, many of them, in my view, poor decisions, uh, had absolutely nothing uh, to do with where they ended up um, with, with this sort of... Uh, over and over again, they essentially said that the thing that um, both, I think, Bernie and Trump voters feel, which is, this system is rigged against me. And at the time when I first read that, and this was maybe like 2016 or 2017, um, I was very unsympathetic to that argument. Um, and, and it did really remind me of the sort of perennial grievance of a certain section of leftist black America. Um, or Appalachia. I mean, well, but that's this. So, and, and that's what it reminded me of. And um, I, I was very unsympathetic to the idea that you're not in control in America of all places. You're not in control of your destiny, that you have no power over the political process. Of course, I was like, I mean, I was a conservative. I, I, I had deep critiques and, and how far we have come from like the sort of constitutional system that we live under. But I, I really didn't see that hopelessness is justified or that lack of agency is justified. Um, when I went back and read it five years later or four years later, right after Trump presidency, I found myself agreeing with them mm. um, that they, they had seen. Now it, it's true that people always like to feel sorry for themselves, us included. Right. Um, and that you have to be careful. And I'm not saying that you know, all sort of working class grievance is always correct. Um, mm -hmm. But the system, the way the system has reacted to Donald Trump, and this does go to the question of norms and Rubicons, and the way that the system has reacted to Donald Trump, to me, has been so disillusioning and revelatory of some deeper impulse, they really feel justified um, in ruling. In, in, and, and when uh, there was a democratic, small d, democratic corrective to the direction that, that Republicans and Democrats had chosen, um, and I, I don't agree entirely with the corrective. Like there are, there are, you know, some from column A and some from column B as far as I'm concerned in terms of what is right on policy. Mm -hmm. Um but the the unwillingness to accept the sovereignty of the American people, and we talk all the time about like, oh, like don't accept the what is it? You, you don't accept the legitimacy of the president. Washington D.C. and the broader elite power network that extends out from it and from the private sector, they refuse to recognize the legitimacy of the American people electing someone who had on on so many points not just challenged around the edges of, of the direction they want to take the country, but challenged the premises of the last 30 years. That's this so is not true. unusual in American politics. There are eras of American politics, right? If you, if you go back, like Reagan definitely broke with the Republican party before. Um, and, you know, and, you know, Ike was more moderate in many ways and had a different vision for the United States than Ronald Reagan. Like, um, <laughs> but like th th in other words this is this is the corrective that like our system gives mm -hmm. imperfectly maybe but there is some kind of corrective when you are on a track 
that has pissed off so many people or disillusioned so many people, so many voters in this country that they were willing to vote for somebody, you know, with crazy hair and a record on on uh, Celebrity Apprentice because he said a few things about the direction that, that they also didn't like about the direction of the country. And the way in which the power brokers in this country reacted to that was by simply saying no. No, you don't you don't get to vote for that. You don't, and and for his entire presidency they used completely illegitimate in ways that destroy norms and now in his post presidency. And it all comes down to this illusion that they seem to have that this is all Donald Trump's fault. Yeah. That, like if we get rid of Trump, everything will go back to normal and it is. You're right. It is a total it is an inexcusable ability to look at what what forces Trump represents and to take any kind of corrective whatsoever. And I think it's actually putting a lot of people in danger. Uh, and, and I hope I'm wrong about that. It's putting the country in danger. And, in a, and, and I think very real like, way, not in like a, you know, abstract headline sort of way, but in like a very real and concrete way. And I think, you know... There were there was a, sh a horrible string of suicides following January sixth among officers, and I know like we still actually that's a very personal thing. I don't think we have all of the answers to it, but uh, in addition to Ashley Babbitt, uh, people died and people were were really hurt by what happened on January sixth, and it was uh, you know wildly unnecessary. Um, it's it's not the fault of elites; it's obviously the fault of people who took matters into their own hands and acted violently and, and wrongly. Uh, but the elites are not making it any better. And they are creating the conditions where more and more people are acting that way. And it's it's going to put a lot of people at danger because it's unjust. The, the climate is uh, the, the climate that is going to precipitate this violence is unjust. And uh, it, it needn't be. Um, it is in many cases illegal to create these unjust conditions. People are breaking the law and getting away with it. And uh, I think that's, you know, people, I hope that we're wrong about this. And I hope we look back 10 years from now and uh, not much blood was spilled. Um, and I'm not saying there's, I don't want to engage in the violence pornography that I think A24 is engaging in with the Civil War movie uh, and that they did with The Hunt, which by the way, both I, I, see are, are sharply satirizing the left. I understand the value in that. Um, but I, I hope this is all wrong. I hope at, at very, you know, that at most it's, it's minimal. Uh, but we've already seen what happened in 2020 and the elites are sprinting in the opposite direction. Instead of engaging in any sort of self-correction, they're, they're sprinting in the opposite direction. Um, so it's, it's hard to see things turning out otherwise. Well, that's a really good, uh, I guess, segue. What do you think is in store for us in 2024. And I don't mean specifically, I'm not asking you to predict the results of the presidential election. I'm not asking you, but, um, you know, let's, let's frame it like this. What is the trend that most worries you? And what is the trend that most gives you hope? And I haven't given you any time to think about this. So I will, mm -hmm. maybe I'll kick it off with mine so that at least yeah. one side, cause I don't, I have to think about the second one too. What trend is most worrying? Um, maybe the one we just discussed, but the trend I'm most positive about is what we discussed on the Federalist podcast, um, which is, I guess that's a subsection of it, but I, I really do think this is a moment um, where the universities may have it, that we have a chance of delivering comeuppance to the universities in an institutional way 
uh, for the poison they've really spread throughout every aspect of American life um, and really damaging them in a way that that hurts uh, the financially in terms of prestige. Um, I think that there's at least the possibility that we've hit a tipping point, which I think is related to the other thing that I think is hopeful going into 2024. I do think in stuttering starts and steps and many disappointments, I think I feel a little more optimistic than I usually do about the fact that there will at least be two sides to this, that the right is at a place where the vast majority of the voters and now even an increasing number of the politicians are understand the game with, with two standards and are no longer willing to play uh, in the same way. Now I could be totally wrong about that. um, But I just, I see lots of little signs that that's true. I think the Republican voters have been there for quite some time. um, But just based on, the way so the the one part of, that doesn't give me that sense is congress but i think a lot of the people who plan on working for whatever republican next up republican administration if that exists um i think there are a lot more people who are open to being to to really following sort of the the chris rufo um Ron DeSantis did not seem to be a, a popular political candidate but like the playbook that he has really um popularized in Florida, uh, of really going to institutional war with the left. Um, I don't know whether we'll win that war. And here I am speaking metaphorically as opposed to the first segment. Um, I don't know whether we'll win that war, uh, but it encourages me that at least there will be, I think for the first time since I've been reading, watching, following this stuff, I really feel like there are two sides, uh, enjoined in this battle. Um, and that's encouraging to me. Hmm. Yeah, I actually think DeSantis, if uh, Trump were not in the race, I think that's what's interesting is is that DeSantis would probably be comfortably uh, cruising through the primary process with with maybe more competition from Vivek, who obviously Trump takes a lot of votes away from. Um, and, and that's where I was going to go, actually, is like the thing that worries me most and gives me the most hope is all, I guess, uh, wrapped up pretty neatly in Trump himself. Um, you know, that on the one hand, you have uh, such a, a stark expression of what so many people feel and are reasonably feeling, which is an utter lack of trust in our institutions. I would be worried if trust in our institutions right now was high, um, you know, from the media to wherever else. Like it deserves to be really low. Maybe the one exception to that is the courts, um, <laughs> where uh, that that is an institution that probably uh, should have more trust in it, but the trust has been eroded by a dishonest media campaign. Uh, all that is to say, though, that on the other hand, though, uh, I actually think after January 6th, Ben Sass said it best, which was that Donald Trump had been playing with fire. Uh, and, and that's also what, what's up? I agree with that. Right. About this sort of, and you know, like, do I think suing Giuliani for $148 million in damages is reasonable? No. Do I think kicking Trump off the ballot is reasonable? Absolutely not. These are all terrifying. And that's one of the things that's like why all of these anxieties are kind of wrapped up in Donald Trump is because he is just like the embodiment 
of the good and the bad uh, in so many different ways because people project everything onto him and then he refracts it back <laughs> uh, in ways that are uh, both good and bad. The, the duality of man uh, just, just neatly embodied by Donald Trump, literally. And th that's the thing that um, I think really worries me is Trump. I don't think Trump's playing with fire is any worse than the CIA's or Biden's playing with fire. But I do think that when uh, the people who are you know, trying to right the ship in ways that Trump can arguably be helpful towards, you know, coming in and doing Schedule F and, you know, just taking out finally someone taking a wrecking ball to the administrative state in ways that maybe DeSantis wouldn't or any typical Republican politician before Trump never would have. Um, so you know, doing that, but at the same time also fanning these flames unhelpfully by, for example, um, you know, spreading some of the like Sidney Powell stuff and, and using some of the rhetoric that some of it is hilarious, some of it is helpful, some of it still is fundamentally unhelpful. You and I could sit here and have a debate about poisoning the blood of the country. Don't say it when you're talking about immigrants. No matter what you mean, don't say it when you're talking about immigrants. Like Some of it is still so unhelpful. Um, and that's, I guess, something that continues to to worry me, even as people in the Trump orbit are are starting to put some meat on the bones of these abstract ideas about riding the ship. Um, there, there's still the Trump factor there. <laughs> so interesting. I have two things to say in the response to that. The first is, I guess I'm Trumpier than you. And the first is, the second is a critique of Trump. So <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to, uh, but uh, I, it doesn't concern me what he said about poisoning the blood of the country. It just doesn't bother. Like Trump is bombastic. And by the way, like, well, the, you the should stop poisoning the blood this of the kind country. Of language, like there is this sort of academic idea that yes, like it's it's dehumanizing language, right? Um, but the number of people in the last thirty years who have said similar things or compared their opponents to cockroaches or vermin, oh, yeah. and, like it's not uncommon, um, and it's kind of like one of those things. Like it's not quite at this level; it's one notch closer connection, but like it's in the direction to me of saying like Hitler also ate breakfast. You know what I mean? Like it, this is <laughs> lesser. Uh, I'm not, I just, I just don't, I, I feel like I have so many serious worries uh, that like Trump's lack of restraint in language is just not one of mine. Um, that being said, his lack of restraint in a different way. It's not just like, I don't care that he pulls out these um these phrases that really offend people and sometimes are genuinely offensive. It just seems to me to be of such a lower order worry. And sometimes they're genuinely funny. <laughs> oh, sometimes they're hilarious. I wish that lemonade thing was true. Did you see the meme where it was like about the oh, uh, yeah. Panera lemonade? It was like the lemonade will kill you folks. That's Biden's America. <laughs> this, like, when I was president, from... the lemonade killed zero people. <laughs> yeah. Straight from Sager's burner account. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, he did not say that regrettably, but uh, no, that that doesn't worry me. My deeper, my my actual critique of Trump, and it does go back to January sixth. I don't think that he uh, incited an insurrection. I don't think he led an insurrection. Um, I don't think there's any way to legally hold him responsible for this, uh, because really, you what can, it is is failing. You, the left always counts on the right to be sober and responsible, <laughs> and uh, about the larger forces in in the country right like we can have democratic politicians go out and say 
harass every Republican at dinner, which has happened, you know, surround them, make them feel the pain. Um, and that is fine. We can have, you know, rhetoric that actually does amount to uh, something that is shockingly uh, and not not really um, no longer part of our discourse. Of course, the fact that a Bernie supporter went and shot up, literally shot at a bunch of Republican congressmen in Alexandria, yep. right? Um, if if that were on the other side, of course, we would be talking about that date. I don't even know that date. Uh, and yet we all know what January 6th was. Um, that being said, I think the phrase you used earlier, playing with fire, I don't care what he says in terms of poisoning the blood of the nation or whatever. At that moment, he should have recognized uh, what previous presidential candidates in his position recognized. It's not the first time there have been questions mm -hmm. in an American election. Um, even I assume that his beliefs are sincere, that he believes the election was stolen from him. He had a choice, like he has many times, um, between what was good for the country and what was good for him. Mm -hmm. um, and he chose what was good for him, and he has thrown the country into worse turmoil uh, in the way that he chose to continually contest this election. As I say, I don't even know. I, I, I Certainly, it was a very messy election, probably the messiest that we've had since the Civil War. In terms of the, the rules changing at the last minute, in terms of COVID restrictions, in terms of everything else, um, in terms of the the uh, things that, that you pointed to, Emily, which are undeniable, right? The fact that negative stories for Joe Biden that were absolutely 100% true were essentially clamped down on um, before the election in a completely illegitimate collusion between government. And so I, all this to say is I don't find this allegation unsupported or crazy or, I mean, some of the specifics like Sidney Powell stuff is crazy, but mm -hmm. um, I don't find it overall. Like, I don't think you have to be a conspiracy theorist or a crazy person to have doubts about who, who quote unquote, actually won in 2020. I think I have some of those doubts. Mm -hmm. um, that's a different question than as you sit there as a presidential candidate, knowing that contesting and continuing to contest the election in this way is unlikely to to result in the election being overturned right. um, and is only going to result in genuinely undermining uh, the American belief, even if legitimate, uh, legitimately undermining the American belief in the fact that we can, in fact, vote every four years and, and take out our differences that way rather than through violence. I think it was unforgivably irresponsible. Um, yeah. And, and my, my evidence for that is that Nixon did it, right? Nixon probably had an election stolen from him by ballot stuffing in Chicago. <laughs> um, and he chose to run again in four years as Trump is running again in four years. And it would have been much better off, like not just for him, I think, um, even for Trump, I think it would have been better, but for the country, it would have been immeasurably better uh, for him to say, you know what, like, I've reached the end of how I'm going to be able to contest this. I still say some funny business happened here. We're coming back in four years. And we're going to we're going to make it so resounding that, you know, nobody will be able to keep us out. Um, yeah. It's what Andrew Jackson did when he thought the election was stolen from him in 1824. It's what Nixon did in 1960. Uh, it's what Trump should have done uh, after. And, and instead, he chose 
to behave frankly like you know an immature narcissistic child and um there were really serious consequences for the country for that and so that that is my that is my critique of trump but i mean the guy's almost 80 he's not going to change no he's not going to be excellent narcissistic there is something about you know the illusion of statesmanship um that you know that's why richard nixon when john f kennedy is going on this potentially tumultuous trip to dallas uh, says, you know, I hope they treat him well down there uh, the week that he goes and visits Dallas. And obviously we know how that turned out, but there's a reason that the play acting that actually they, they're always falling short of it. We know that because they're human beings um, and because there's been, you know, some corruption of the system that that exacerbates their normal human tendencies. Uh, but they're, they're always falling short of it. Everyone's always going to fall short of it. But when we actually have that illusion, um, what it speaks to is us holding them to those standards. And Trump obviously shattered all of that. And, and you know, it's it's fun to watch, but it's not healthy that we've dispensed with these norms and standards because those were a symbol of consensus and they were a symbol that uh, politicians were responding to a demand from the electorate to rise above. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's yeah. sad. It's a bad, it, 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 it is a additional bad sign that uh, we find those kinds of appeals um, laughable, right? The idea, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. it is, to, to return to the subject we've made jokes about, it is really hard to say, well, the sanctu- the sanctuary of the of the Senate is inviolate. Yeah. Uh, when right. the staffers they are- They called Kavanaugh a rapist in there. You know, having anal sex on in the meeting rooms. Like- that is our, I mean, we talk about the Rubicon. That's, you know, send your horse to the Senate. That's like later, <laughs> later empire collapse. Yeah, um, it is. But it's also like what they called Brett Kavanaugh rapist in that, that's right. in that hearing room just a couple yeah, of years like, ago. How do, so, you, how do you maintain? By all means. Yeah. Like how, how can you tell people, well, you must consider this, you know, the people's Senate, right? Um, so, <laughs> worthy of honor and respect um when <laughs> when you do the sorts of things that you do in it and and in that sense like it initially made me really angry the staffers having sex on the uh house but i mean but then i had to tell myself like about what am i angry mm-hmm. right haven't far worse things happened in that and and like that itself that process of disillusionment and the stripping of any ability to hold any institution in some level of regard and trust Mm -hmm. is i really do worry we're like going to be not just forget civil war i think we're like entering a dark age i mean even even our literacy is is in the toilet like people can't read Yep. Oh, 100%. No, I, right before we started, I had been recording a Federalist Trader Hour with John Daniel Davidson, um, who's writing a book called Pagan America. And we had been, it's out in March. I'm super excited to read it because he was talking about how, you know, the the state of nature is the norm uh, throughout the course of human history. And what's so shocking about uh, what's happening to America right now is that the West kind of found a way, it, it found a really good way to moderate and and temper the passions of man in uh, with a sort of system of government 
for centuries. And, you know, that, that government wasn't always perfect. And it's arguably led us down some frightening roads with secularism, technology and all of that. Um, we could debate, you know, different things. But um, at the end of the day, there was a level of peace, basic peace and safety and the sort of Maslow, uh, Maslowian uh, needs kind of being assured and met. Uh, and, and that being balanced also, though, with personal freedom um, in a way that just had never happened before in the vast scope of human history on that scale. And I think that's what's jarring about right now is that slipping through our fingers and we're really used to it. Um, so it's not that what could happen to us you know, down the road is unusual throughout the course of human history. It's that it's deeply unusual for, for us because we were so incredibly privileged uh, to grow up in the way that we did. Yeah, I mean, on, on I have a few more lighthearted things to transfer to. Just oh, you know, we have to we have to liven this up a little bit, I guess. Um, I still have some uh, Tito's here, so lay it on yeah. me. Yeah, no. So this is you know, and and I I I do think it's it is wrong. I'm not a Christian, uh, but it is wrong to despair, right? Um, not not because. Uh, I actually don't have like sort of this existential. I don't think despair is a sin um, the way that I know my, my friend uh, Spencer Clavin thinks and probably you too as a Christian. Um, I don't think despair is a sin, but I think it's genuinely unwarranted uh, in the scope that you just talked about it. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think there are still quite a few good forces in America. Um, I think the American people are, quite difficult to reconstruct for a variety of cultural and, and even geographical reasons. Um, I mean, I, I think there are forces that push against us going into a kind of civil war, not least of which is the fact that it's actually a patchwork. It, there really isn't red states and blue states. Um, we have those trends of people moving now, but um, the, the sort of fault lines don't look the same way as they did in our first civil war. Um, okay, Obama. <laughs> uh, there's no red America, no blue America. Um, you know, geographically, it's more like it really is a patchwork. Um, anyway, I, I think I think there are reasons not to despair, which is not to undercut the seriousness of of the things that we are facing. Um, but even if America collapses, there are reasons not to despair. Right? People have lived in worse circumstances and mm -hmm. have. Uh, you know, and held the candle of civilization through dark ages before. Um, it's not the end of the human race. It's not the end of civilization. It's not the end of the truths that uh, we hold dear. So even in that dark way, I, I think despair is sort of unwarranted, um, or at least the deepest form of despair is unwarranted. Um, mm -hmm. But since, since I'm talking about the lack of despair, it's Christmas. Um, Emily, I'm going to ask you some Christmas traditions first. Are you going home? Are you going home to, uh, to the Midwest? I am. I, I am going home to the Midwest. Uh, I will be leaving for Wisconsin, uh, tomorrow. So that's exciting. Although it's not going to be snow. So it looks like it's just gonna be rain, which is the worst possible, uh, Christmas weather, but that's okay. <laughs> Uh, I was going to say, you know, I, I just said that it is wrong to despair. I think it's fair to despair if you are traveling on Christmas. <laughs> I think that's the exception. 
<laughs> well, maybe. I mean, I don't know. See, this is, but Inez, this raises an interesting point, which is that how could you possibly despair, even on Christmas, when you have the technology at your fingertips to be hurdled 30,000 feet above the surface of the earth uh, with, you know, relative safety um, and, and get from one point of the world to another point of the world in a shockingly short period of time with comfort, with all of the shows comfort. in the world. Wow. Well, yeah. You well, are relative comfort, relative comfort. Uh, if, if I can have, you know, a beer and Netflix, which you can on a plane now, even if I'm stuffed next to some sweaty weirdo, uh, it's, you know, again, what we've lost causes us to despair because it used to be so much more dignified. But relative to the scope of human history, it's hard to despair even on Christmas uh, to be stuffed next to that sweaty guy. You even, we are so blessed that we even have access to the app on which we can complain about yes. our discomforts to millions of people. If As someone puts their socks next to, to you, put it on Twitter. <laughs> oh, here's a question. Okay, what what is the worst violation? What's the worst common violation of uh airplane etiquette so not like some weird thing you've seen one time but something you see consistently what is the worst thing you can do as a plane passenger i mean i i really dislike people putting their seats back um there's a raging debate about the ethics of that i really dislike it i i just don't think the the risk is worth the reward or the the cost let's say it this way i don't think the cost to your fellow passenger is worth the benefit to you even if you've paid for it um I used to be on the other side of this question, and now I'm on your side. I think what has changed my mind is merely the shrinking of the, yeah, uh, like to the point where the average person, especially if you're on the tall side, like your knees are already right <laughs> in the back. Yeah. Um, whereas I felt differently about it when there was, you know, a few extra uh, inches of leg room. Um, and I thought it was fine. Look, this, I, I, I made all the arguments. The seat reclined so I can recline it. Right? <laughs> but uh, well, one thing I have not done that for probably seven or seven or eight years because before that there was more room. And after that there was less room. And I, I really did feel bad knocking the knees of the person behind me. I've seen a lot of people recently, and this applies to subways as well as uh, well, it basically just applies to public spaces, but it's really bad when you're in an airport or an airplane and people are watching shows without headphones. And I feel like flight attendants are pretty good about cracking down on that, but it's a trend that seems to be accelerating. Yeah, no, that might that annoys me more than the reclining thing. I, that's what I was gonna say. Uh, that and people taking off their sh shoes, which I also used to do as a kid, but like very different <laughs> situation. If you're an adult, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, not great. Don't. Do um. That. Anyway, that oh, and people who like freak out about kids crying on the on the plane. Yeah, I know. Like, I I know. I mean obviously understand the annoyance but just actually both sides of that debate I, I that continual debate about who like sort of who's ruder on the plane i really hate both sides of that debate i hate the people who say that it's like some horrible anti-child thing if you hand out little like you know chocolate kisses or something to the people around you and be like hey like my baby's probably gonna cry i feel like that's a very nice gesture uh, but people on the internet are like, oh, that's terrible. Like, you're just ceding your right to public spaces with a child or something. And then on the flip side, there are the people who are like, children shouldn't be allowed to travel home to their families for Christmas. Like, 
<laughs> I li- I lived next to I an apartment. Both sides. I am a I'm a I'm a solid Sweden esque neutral of hating everyone in that debate. Right. Yeah. No. I lived next to an apartment once that really challenged. Uh, uh, so like the pro natalist argument on the right has actually challenged. I grew up religious, but I had this like secular pop cultural programming and got so frustrated at kids screaming in church or uh, on airplanes or whatever. And now I just you know maybe because I'm older. I, it doesn't bother me as much. I find, you know, the it's it's funny and, you know, I feel badly for the parents. And I think it's wonderful that you can hear the sounds of children, um, uh, you know, but at the same time, I live next to an apartment once where the, the kid was, it would be from like, like clockwork from like midnight um, until like four in the morning screaming for about seven months. Maybe, maybe it was closer to five months. And they kept the baby like right next to the wall that shared with my bedroom. And they like gave, I think they like put candy or something or chocolate outside uh, my apartment once with a note that like was apologizing for it and a sleep machine. And I was like, dude, like, thank you for the gesture, but <laughs> this has got to stop. Like, do something. Imagine how they felt about it. <laughs> anyway. true, I mean, true, but nothing. I, I did not have did not make the decision to have a baby. I was paying stupid amounts of money in rent to be able to sleep at peace. Um yeah, I know interest that's actually an interesting thing. I I also have gotten less like intolerant. I think I was once more intolerant. I think that's just a function of our culture that um you just and it's not even an ideological thing because like you and I are both on the right and probably not ideologically sort of bought into this, but you just become more tolerant of things that you are around. Mm-hmm. And the first time that you hear the baby scream, you're really annoyed by it. Uh, and then the tenth time you hear a baby scream, you're like, "Oh, that's what babies do." Okay, um, it's fine. Uh, I can tune it out. Stopped. Can't stop. Won't stop. Yeah, uh, I think it's just like a function of us having smaller families, not interacting uh, with the very young or the very old very often, um, which I think Absolutely. is 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 a loss. Uh, not and only not only because of what it means, uh, the fact that people aren't perpetuating their their species or their families, um, but but also like obviously it has made us more intolerant and crotchety people. So that uh, might be another argument in favor of natalism is that it makes a society less crotchety. But I have more I have more uh, Christmas questions for you, though. So what is your tradition on Christmas? Like, what do you have? First of all, do you is the big day the 24th or the 25th? And what do you eat? Uh, big day is the 25th. Uh, we usually actually eat prime rib. That's a tradition for my mom's family that was passed on to her that she's passed on to us. I don't know that we're doing it this year because, uh, I mean, it's expensive. <laughs> it's also easy to no screw kidding. up. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think I actually don't know where my mom landed, but there's a cost benefit analysis happening in her mind, at least. Um, uh, 25th is a big day tradition i'm always the first person up even though i'm the last to be a morning person in my entire family i'm always the first person up i have a younger brother when we were kids i would wake him up jump on him uh, by all means necessary uh i don't know if i'll do that this year i still do it sometimes uh but i go down there look at the tree the presents uh sometimes i try to start the fire myself which is not a good idea 
Um, and I turned the TV on to TBS, which is always playing a Christmas story. I put that on mute. I put Christmas music on. Uh, I get, it used to be Ovaltine. Now it's coffee. I get something uh, going and then I wait agonizingly long time for my parents to uh, get out of bed, but particularly my dad, who's like me, not a morning person and just drags his feet. He's always like getting a camcorder ready and it just, it's agonizing um, less so today than when I was a kid, but we open presents, we go one by one, which I think is the right way to open presents. Some people do it all at once. That seems insane to me. Uh, so it takes a long time, but it's, you know, maybe the most fun that you have all year. Uh, yeah, no, I, I can definitely see the, the one by one thing. I, I guess I have such a small family, um, and haven't celebrated Christmas till recently, but this is my second or third Christmas that we've done. Okay. So you are, I didn't know that. Yeah. We, uh, cause my husband celebrates Christmas and, um, for a variety of reasons, initially the pandemic now, just like the sheer cost of going back to California, cause for a long time we were going back to California. Um, I mean, it's just like, just like the prime, <laughs> prime rib roast, right? It's like. Mm-hmm. It's obscene. It, you know, it's more expensive than flying to Europe. Uh, <laughs> no, it really, it is. <laughs> no, really. Last time I checked last year, it was $1,500 a person, per person. $3,000 to fly back to California. Absurd. Anyway. Um, so Did you guys do Hanukkah this year? Huh? Did you guys do Hanukkah this year too? Yeah, I mean, I I, I did. I like the, I like the candles. It's not, I'm not a, a too great a not too great a Jew, but I do like the candles. Um, but my mom, um, who's, I have this like half and half side of my family. My dad's Jewish. My mom is Christian. Um, or like that's their family background in Europe. They talk about this as like, you, you inherit this in your blood. It's not about practice. Um, but, uh, so my mom has not, and my dad is kind of, I love my father deeply, but he's a bit of a Grinch about holidays. (laughs) He only wants to, like, he only celebrates, Fourth of July and Thanksgiving. Those are his like, very American. <laughs> that holidays. is such an immigrant move. <laughs> um, so he is not uh, into Christmas, but my mom tried to sort of do little Christmas things and kept getting shot down uh, by my father <laughs> for like forty years of her life. Um, but now we've developed in the last couple of years this little very nice tradition where she comes up uh, to New York and she celebrates Christmas with me and Jarrett, and we do uh, on the twenty fourth, which is the big deal in poland they like that's the major part of the holiday that evening that's when they open presents everything so they also do something called bigalia which is as far as i can tell from online is actually a borrowed tradition from italy but it's very popular in poland um so there's fish on the 24th because the catholics don't eat uh meat on the 24th and then um and then we do kind of american christmas on the 25th so uh we open presents on the 24th and then we do the more American, uh, you know, glazed ham sort of mashed potato mm-hmm. situation um, on on the twenty fifth. So, uh, what did you do when you were a kid on the twenty fifth? We didn't really do Christmas when I was a kid. I mean, yeah. every so often I had like a like a stocking with like something small in it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we didn't. We really, I really didn't celebrate Christmas um, much growing up. Yeah. Uh, so it's not. I really don't feel like it's my holiday. But there is this sort of Americana. 1950s Christmas. Um, oh yeah, that and and it it did occur to me like this year since I'm having to do it, it was never a problem because I was always going to my in laws and they were doing Christmas and I was a perfectly happy sort of participant from the outside. Now that we do it here, we have for the last few years, I've been more um, like 
it struck me that, you know, I, I have to create because that's as much as, you know, whatever the left or feminists or whatever want to rail against it, it does often fall to the woman um, to be the keeper of traditions and to honestly the creator of traditions. Um, so it has fallen upon me. And so I've like sort of tried to figure out how I, I can do it or like what what traditions I want to keep um, because if I didn't do it, then then Jarrett would be very sad. Uh <laughs> And women love doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, even you. The uh, even me. Even me. Um, let me see. I have. Oh, I have other questions. This one I feel really strongly about. This is the only thing on Christmas that I feel really strongly about. Actually, real or artificial tree. I mean, ideally, a real tree. Absolutely, I always had a real tree growing up. I'm in an apartment, uh, so I do. I have a little. I have a tiny fake tree, but. That's not the ideal. I guess that's acceptable, but it smells so good. That's the best no, it does. Part. It smells really good. And if you have a fake one, there's no yeah. smell. No, I agree. I mean, as soon as I have a bigger space, I'll never do a fake tree again. Good. Okay. Well, then I approve of your Christmas celebration. <laughs> you know, actually, so <laughs> growing up, it was so authentic that uh, we actually dragged our, cut down our own tree uh, and dragged it through the woods. So sort of lit my, my house sort of back in the woods growing up and we cut down our own tree and like actually dragged it through the snow and put it up in our house. Uh, that's, that, I feel, I also feel very strongly about the real tree. That is the ideal. Um, so much so that we never, I don't have any memories at Christmas tree farms. Um, you know, literally, but you know, uh, the real American the things chop down your own tree, dragged it back. That's right. Yeah. That then it definitely smells really good because I feel like oh. the the ones that we get even so somebody asked me online and it's an interesting uh, logistical question but how people in New York City get their trees um, mm -hmm. and the answer is on every like three blocks or right around Thanksgiving these Christmas tree farm situations pop up um, and you can you can buy them usually within a few blocks of your home uh, but because they're shipped in from outside and they're not, you're not cutting it off of um, the, like it's roots yourself or at that time, I do think they don't smell as nice. Yeah. I believe that completely. Um, they smelled when I first got it, but now it's like, even by Christmas, it's kind of doesn't, I mean, it's not dry. I watered it, but it doesn't quite, it was like so fragrant with the fur smell that smelled so good. Um, and it's not so much anymore, which is sad. Uh, let's see. Do you, do you have new year's traditions? Is new year's a big deal for you or your family or your friends or anything? You know, I've always loved new year's Eve. Um, like a lot of people, um, my grandparents, when I was really young had, uh, they always had a party, uh, and we would always go over there and I would get to see, you know, family and everyone again from Christmas and, you sort of let the kids go off and do whatever they do um, in a, a wonderful old house. Uh, so I always liked that. And then as I got older, um, very good family friends of ours hosted this incredible New Year's Eve party with the same people year after year where uh, the, the dad would create a wonderful, wonderful trivia presentation. He would dress up and he would do different impressions and give the kids a stupid amount of cash. Um, and and there, everyone would sort of bring hors d'oeuvres and this it was just a, a blast. Um, and so that's kind of as kids have gotten over and older and everything and, and all of that, I, 
I don't know if my parents are doing that this year. I haven't been home for New Year's in a while. Um, but, you know, there, there's some so many wonderful New Year's Eve traditions. I like watching TV on New Year's Eve. I think TV is at its best. American TV is incredible on New Year's Eve. There are so many different classic movies being played simultaneously. There are these amazing New Year's Eve broadcasts. Um, honestly, I, growing up, I was always very amused by the Fox News broadcast. Um, I you know, have always enjoyed the CNN That's broadcast. Watch Anderson Cooper take shots. Honestly, the CNN broadcast is such a disaster. Like, it is just an I mean, Honestly, disaster. that is my favorite part of yes. CNN. I mean, yes. you enjoy watching them get hammered. Yes, and they make absolute fools of themselves in ways that they find amusing for reasons that are different than why you find them amusing. <laughs> um, but and like Dick Clark, I mean, I actually just really personally love being antisocial on New Year's Eve and uh, having a good meal and watching a couple of years ago, we did uh, Godfather and had homemade spaghetti, like every part of it was homemade. And that was fun. I don't know. What about you? It, it That was always the big deal holiday for me um, mm -hmm. at this part of the season was always New Year's. Um, and I, I always like the earlier part of the season, whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah, was always with family. Um, and then New Year's always with friends, uh, which I know we've talked about declining friendship and stuff. I, I think it's really important. Um, but yes, I, I, I care about New Year's. I always have. I know that like, actually, I think it's for a long time, there's been kind of this trend, uh, a lot of Vox pieces written about, uh, oh, you don't have to go out for New Year's. Like, you don't need to do anything for New Year's. You can go to sleep at nine. Like, why do you care? This is a BS holiday. People don't. It's arbitrary. Um, the Christian calendar. I I think it's a really good annual reminder to think about sort of the direction of your life. And I, I like the practice of making resolutions. Um, and then I just, you know, when I was younger, I liked to really, really party for New Year's. I mean, when I was younger, we're going to party this year too, but just Whoa. differently. Um, I, I like the, the friendship um, aspect of it and, and celebrate. Stay away from the rainbow cover. Uh, colored fentanyl and uh no we're we're actually so our plan is that we're going with at this count i think 24 people so this is gonna be big um to a russian restaurant which has been our our uh, <laughs> in the last few years there's always like so in the soviet union uh basically everybody was not really allowed either jews or christians were really encouraged it's kind of a border depending on what time and in what province mm -hmm. um but nobody was really encouraged to do their traditions um like mm -hmm. their religious traditions right it's officially an atheist uh state um and so a lot of it got kind of pushed to new year's so uh they have a new year's tree the tree is for new year's because everybody kept doing the christmas tree um but even soviet Amazing. jews do like a new year's tree right um and uh it just it like took on i don't know it took on a lot of these but there's there's a huge performance there's like Anyway, there, there, there are all sorts of funny things and then many, many, many courses and many shots of vodka and uh, many glasses of champagne and many toasts and uh, good wishes. So I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a superstitious person. I have a really hard time with all the woo-woo stuff. Like I have chucked not at all with astrology and uh, anything else. I find it all ridiculous. Stay away from it. But I do, uh, I do have a... Uh, superstitious sense about what like how you ring in the year is the perspective that you're going to take and so if you are miserable and sad um and uh don't 
participate in in like marking the occasion how whatever that means to you like you're gonna be cursed with uh with that attitude for the rest of the year um probably not true but nevertheless i always i want to celebrate new year's i want to mark that i think it's increasingly important to mark time as you get older uh, um, it seems to go by faster and faster which is a cliche but also true um and so it's very nice to to mark, to think about the direction of your life, to think about the things you've done wrong and right and how you want to uh, shape your life uh, for the next year. And I, I find New Year's to be that in addition to a, uh, an important ritual with friends that solidifies friendships. So that's my pitch for New Year's. Uh, everybody, I know I know people, it's like one of those holidays people love to hate. Um, mm-hmm. But I love New Year's, un- unironically and and uh, without reservation. So, well, I'll think about that when I lock myself into a dark room with a pizza and CNN. <laughs> well, what you're really doing there, Emily, is setting yourself up for a year of laughing at CNN. Yeah, which is inevitable anyway. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. True. All right. Well, uh, on that note, we're going to wrap up the last episode of the year, 2023 of. Uh, both high noon and after dark. Emily Jashinsky, thank you as always for coming on. Uh, we will we'll see you in the new year. I can't even figure out how to get the glass on the camera. If you're listening to this, <laughs> I, I'm trying I to just get the finished glass mine. So that means this is time for the episode to be, <laughs> be over. Good timing. Thanks, Ines. Bye, Emily. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next year on High Noon.